0: Douglas Murray is a British intellectual and author. Just a few years ago, he wrote a book called The Madness of the Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity. The atheist philosopher Sam Harris reviewed the book and called it brilliant. Murray himself is an atheist. And in The Madness of the Crowds, Murray struggles to make sense of the world in which we live. He writes, The interpretation of the world through the lens of social justice, identity group politics and intersectionality is probably the most audacious and comprehensive effort since the end of the Cold War at creating a new ideology. According to Murray, looking at life through the lens of social justice and identity group politics and intersectionality is leaving us with a gaping hole in our society. Frederick Nietzsche told us that God was dead and we should move on boldly with our life. But even as Nietzsche proclaimed that God is dead, he also foresaw a time when we would be forced to live with the consequence of that decision. As Nietzsche proclaimed that God was dead, he foresaw a time that people would still wrestle with the concepts of guilt and sin and shame, but then would be without the means of redemption that the Christian religion had once offered. And today, writes Douglas Murray, we now have woken up in the world that Nietzsche foresaw, a world in which we know plenty of condemnation, but we know almost nothing of forgiveness. Murray observes, today we do seem to live in a world where actions can have consequences we could have never imagined, where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever, and yet where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. We do know, we don't know who could offer it, who could accept it, or whether it's even desirable. And he concludes noting that gaping hole that Nietzsche foresaw in our society, saying, in some manner with which we still haven't begun to wrestle, we've created a world in which forgiveness has become almost impossible. And we remain remarkably unconcerned to create any mechanisms or consensus over how to address the resulting conundrum. So, intersectionality, social justice condemn us all as guilty, but offer nothing but a lifetime of penance with little hope of forgiveness. And back in November of 1964, Hannah Arendt, a political Uh, theorist who fled Germany in the war because of her Jewish ancestry, warned where we are left when society can condemn but not forgive. She gave a lecture at the University of Chicago in 1964 in which she concluded, without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we have done, we would be confined to the consequences of one single deed from which we can never recover. We would remain the victim of that one deed and its consequences forever. Not unlike the sorcerer's apprentice who lacked the magic formula to break the spell. So we live in a world full of condemnation, but without an ounce of forgiveness. But deep down inside, we all know we need forgiveness. Because we all know at some level we're guilty of something. So where do we go? This, of course, is what the Lord's Supper in our midst shows us. Friends, before the Lord's Supper shows us anything else, it shows us our guilt. Jesus did not die because we were so lovable. He died because we're all so guilty. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Lord's Supper reminds us all what we deserve, death. But friends, today we're going to see a great king who shows us the way forward through this conundrum. The God whom Nietzsche claims we killed is the one into whose hands we must fall. For as great King David learned, it's better to the fall in the hands of God, whose mercy is greater than the condemnation of the crowds. Today, a great king shows us a universal need, forgiveness for universal experience, guilt, and the lesson comes from the last chapter in 2 Samuel. Would you please locate 2 Samuel 24, located in the first half of the Christian Bible 2 Samuel 24. As the story of 1 and 2 Samuel ends, as King David is going to remove his robes, take off his crown, lay his scepter down on the throne, and then walk off the stage, the divine author wants us to see the great need of Israel then and the need of everyone today. Friends, all of us need forgiveness for our wrongs and an absolution of guilt. And our guilt, we said last week, the secular psychologist tells us, our guilt goes off like a snooze alarm in our head that won't shut off. And we need something, someone to help us that society no longer has the resources for forgiveness. And that's what we'll see today. The wrath of God averted and the forgiveness of God enjoyed. That too is what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. That Jesus offered his life in our place for the consequences of our wrongdoings. The condemnation of the Lord's Supper will give way this morning to the comfort of the Lord's Supper. For all those who know the Lord. From this table, you hear the words that Nathan spoke to David. The Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. For a final time, remember the purposeful arrangement of these final four chapters of Second Samuel. This well-ordered epilogue reprises all of the major melodies that played throughout the drama. The outer chapters, 21 and 24, open and close the same way. And the final four chapters open and close with a good God, rightly angered by Israel's injustice, leaving them with a glaring need of atonement. And in the middle is David, the royal figure surrounded by his mighty men as he comes to the end. And you can summarize the need we said last week, You can summarize the need by a melody that's been playing throughout the book of Samuel. What can wash away my sin? That's the melody playing throughout the book that's played a final time as the chapter ends. Today we're going to answer that. Last week we pointed out this this play, this drama in 2 Samuel 24, progresses in four acts. We saw the sovereignty of the sovereign that moved into the sin of the census, that gave way to the confession of the king. And this morning we'll look at the propitiation of the plague. What will a good God do in the face of injustice? We'll finish the story. You and 2 Samuel 24. We're going to begin by by recovering the confession of the king in verses 14 to 17, and then end with the propitiation of the plague. So here in the sovereignty of God, an unspecified sin leads to David's sin. And now the king turns to the only place any of us can turn. Let's read Second Samuel 24, verses 14, the end of the chapter. This is what Holy Scripture says. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of a man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I myself have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that very day to David and said to him, Go up raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to a servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No. But I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the word of God of the Lord. What a deep and beautiful mystery here. The chapter opens with God justly and mercifully angry against sin an unspecified sin. But in his just and merciful sovereignty, it leads to an atonement for all of Israel here. God uses the sin of his people to provide the atonement that his people actually need. And not only that, God's not only interested in dealing with this one unspecified sin, but he wants to provide a final place to deal with sin. That's the overarching flow of the chapter, the sovereignty of God to provide a final place of atonement for his people. In a moment of suspense, followed by by eye-popping mercy, at just the moment that the angel of death has raised his hand to bring it down on Jerusalem, at just that moment, at the threshold of Jerusalem, before David even asks, God stops the judgment. Did you notice that order? And verse 17 David acts like a good shepherd and a high priest. He pleads with the Lord to punish him for his sin, not to punish the people. But even before David made that request, God had already relented. God's merciful cry of enough in verse 16 comes before David's prayer for it to stop. And now we see deep into God's heart that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that he's slow to anger, that he's quick to forgive. Before David asks, God's heart moves to work forgiveness for his people. Look here, friends, into the heart of God. Before he's asked, God is more eager to forgive than we are to ask for it. And do we not see the eagerness of God to forgive displayed in the Son of God at the cross before we asked? For outside the gates of Jerusalem, the crucified King of love utters His first words from the cross that echo God's words outside of Jerusalem here in 2 Samuel 24. Hanging on the cross and bleeding out Jesus' first words outside of Jerusalem. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. It is worth noting, remarks The Anglican J.C. Ryle, that as soon as the blood of the sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. Before David asks, God moves to show mercy. He's more eager to forgive than we are to ask. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's why David marveled in a song that he wrote at another time. He wrote a song, and here's how we put in the middle in Psalm 86.5. Oh, Lord, you are good, so ready to forgive. Who do you know is like that? Who do you know can't wait to forgive? Man, I have a hard time forgiving. Do you have a hard I mean, real hard things. But God is ready to forgive, eager to forgive. Oh, this desperate plea reminds us, doesn't it? This desperate plea. But God's mercy before the plea reminds me of Charles Gabriel in his hymn who wrote, He called me long before I heard, before my sinful heart was stirred. Indeed, through the Lord's Supper, we remember Christ, the Lamb of God, who was slain, Revelation 13, Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. And Paul invites every one of us to worship and marvel at God who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This wondrous love shown to us here in 2 Samuel 24. God moves to show mercy before David asks And don't you see? I know it's not the main point, but don't you see? Don't you see the father of the prodigal son standing a great way off, eager to forgive? God is so much greater, so much greater than that father. As Richard Sibbs wrote, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. There's the source of the propitiation. The cause of the propitiation originates no other place than in the heart of God. But now let's see the provision of the propitiation. I want you to notice the order of the events again. After David prays for mercy, for God to take his life instead of the life of his people, God immediately now brings into time, God brings his hidden plans for mercy into visible reality through David's prayer. Verses 18 to 19, in answer to David's prayer for mercy, God sends Gad the prophet. And Gad the prophet is going to make provision for David's plea. And Gad came that day. The day David prayed, Gad came to David and said, Go raise an altar up to the Lord on the threshing floor. So while David can cry out to God for mercy, David cannot provide mercy for himself. Only God can provide what David needs. As great as David is, he's the king after all. He's not great enough to atone his wrongs. And friend, your work can't atone for your wrongs. Your marriage can't atone for your wrongs. Your feeling sorry can't atone for your wrongs. David couldn't atone for his wrongs as the king and neither can we. But it doesn't stop us from trying. We all try in lots of ways to make up for our failures in some way. We can overpromise to atone for our wrongs. I'll never get angry again. I'll never do that again. Someone else says that we we paint over our guilt. We whitewash our guilt. We paint over the stain of our conscience and tell ourselves it really wasn't that bad. Or close to related, like Adam in the garden who blamed his wife, we shift the blame. In some way, we say, it wasn't really my fault. If you only knew how I grew up, you'd understand why I do that. We even engage in self-pity and self-loathing to right our wrongs. And the logic of self-pity, it feels good because it feels like repentance, but it's not. It's something like this. I will show everyone how terrible I feel. I'll show everybody what I did was wrong by how terrible I feel. And when people see how sorry I am, they'll do two things. They'll either leave me alone or they'll feel so sorry for me, they'll say what I did wasn't really that bad. You're being too hard on yourself. If I beat myself up enough for how I acted, people will leave me alone or they'll tell me, stop, it's okay. And whitewashing our guilt, we we tell ourselves it's no big deal. And self-loathing, we feel so bad about it until somebody else will tell us it's not that big of a deal. But while self-pity feels like repentance, it's not. Tim Keller, a beloved Presbyterian minister in New York who recently passed away, used to say to New Yorkers that the use of self-hating contrition as a way to be contrite for one's sins... And the need of God's forgiveness is as much a proud denial that you don't need his help as actually saying it. They're both forms of self-righteousness, both ways of self-atonement. How do you atone for your wrongs? Overwork, overpromising, not that big of a deal, self-pity, shifting responsibility. They're all forms of self-atonement, trying to be our own boss, trying to be our own broker, to act as our own savior. But what the scene is showing you, if you have eyes to see that only God can provide the mercy that we know that we need, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's the old hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. So God is not only the source of the propitiation, God is the only one who can provide it. And when you take the bread and the cup today, beloved, it's an act, a repeated act of deep self-renunciation that you are saying again, as you said when you first trusted Christ, I renounce all efforts to save myself. I renounce all efforts to forgive myself. I take this bread and this cup and I say, With my brothers and sisters, thou must save, and thou alone. But from the the cause of the propitiation and to the provision of it, I want you to think now of the place that it happens. God provides the place. Three times, the divine playwright of the passage tells us where this is to happen. David may choose his sin, but he's not going to choose the place of his forgiveness. God's grace would plan it all. his mine but to believe. Three times. Look at the end of verse 16. Then again at the end of verse 18. Finally in verse 21. David is told three times to go by the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. And on that threshing floor of this Jebusite man, he's to build an altar. Three times. Why this place? I want to think at it for three at three angles. Practically speaking, the threshing floor now will provide a perfect spot for an altar and a sacrifice. A threshing floor would be a wide open area where you dried the wheat that you had harvested. And then after the grain dries out that you laid on the floor, you crush it, you pound it in some way with a tool called a threshing sledge mentioned here. And in the middle of the threshing floor was often a large, rectangular, flat rock surface on which you threw the wheat to dry. So as David buys this threshing place, a large open area in the middle is a large, flat rock upon which he can build an altar. It's a practical location. But it's not only practical, it's strategic. The threshing floor that David buys from this Jebusite man is seated on top of a hilltop location from which you could look down and see the city of Jerusalem. You know that in part because the parallel passage in Chronicles says the angels above Jerusalem looking down. We also know that because in verse 19 we're told David goes up to the threshing floor and Aruna looks down as David comes up. So here's this practical location, this strategic location that's overlooking this hilltop, that's overlooking Jerusalem. And it's at this very spot, overlooking Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye, the heartbeat of his heart, that God's merciful hand had stayed the angel's sword of judgment at this very spot. It's also the property of a man named Aruna the Jebusite. Who are the Jebusites? Well, they were the former inhabitants of Jerusalem that this place now overlooks before King David had conquered the city and then dislocated its inhabitants back in 2 Samuel 5. And not only that, the Jebusites were a remnant of the Canaanites whom Israel was to drive out under Joshua. But he never finally did. So now, here's the threshing floor of a former Canaanite one of those Jebusites whom God kings, God's king had finally displaced from Jerusalem. And it's this place that God's king purchases at a great cost. And therefore it takes on now a deeply symbolic meaning. It's practical. It's strategic. But it now takes on a deeply symbolic meaning. And it's symbolically placed, literally, but literarily, at the end of the book, symbolically. What's happening? Well, in verse 20, Aruna, this Jebusite Canaanite, one of those former enemies of God, now bows face down and he pays homage to God's Messiah King. What a moment in the story. Jebusites, Philistines and others throughout the story, they had been opposing God's Messiah King. But now, in verse 22 and 23, this Jebusite is not only down in his face in a worshipful posture, but he gladly surrenders everything that he has to the king. It's a moment in history in Samuel as the story ends. It's a preview. As the story ends, it's a preview of the end of all history and a literal but symbolic event. Here are those nations, in a sense, former enemies, Bowing in homage, in full surrender to Messiah's, God's king. And it all happens at the place of atonement where God's wrath is averted. God's enemies and God's people are being made right with God's king. But more than that, more than any of those reasons, this now becomes a deeply theological location. A sacred location. We have sacred locations in our national history in America. Wherever you're from, you you probably have them too. So if somebody would launch a campaign in front of the Alamo, nobody would miss that. If you launched a campaign along some marker along the Freedom Trail in Boston, or you set up your initial campaign in front of the Boston Harbor uh, Tea Party Museum, uh, no one would miss the connection. Something significant is going on that you chose to do that there. What are you saying about yourself? Well, that's what's happening with this altar being built at this location by God's command. You know what else happened at this place? This is when you'd have to read the biblical context. You'd have to read the literary context. Next to these verses in 2 Samuel 24, explaining the location where this threshold is, where David builds an altar, next to verse 16 and 18 and 21, you should write 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1. And 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, here's what we are told. The place that the Lord appeared to David at the threshing floor of the Jebusite was also known as Mount Moriah. Great day. In other words, God's mercy, His provision, the place He wanted this atoning sacrifice to happen in 2 Samuel 24... is on the same place where something significant happened just like it. Mount Moriah is the very place where God stopped Abraham. Picture it in your mind. The text is graphic. As Abraham raised the knife at that very moment, God said, enough. And in the place of Isaac, God provided the sacrifice. That was Mount Moriah. And now this is going to happen again here at the same location where Abraham once lifted up his knife. David sees the angel of the Lord lifting up a sword. And at just the same moment, when God's judgment is about to come down, God says, enough. And He provides a place for a sacrifice. In both cases, God ends the impending death with a sacrifice. Death is averted by a sacrifice once again on Mount Moriah. You see, it's no accident. This is no happenstance. Out of all the locations, God could have commanded David to buy and build an altar. Think of that. Of all the places, God could have commanded that to happen. He commanded Gad to go tell David to go to that threshing floor, which just so happens to be Mount Moriah. Oh, why? God chose Mount Moriah as the place that David would build this altar because he wants people to know that you can fall into the hands of a merciful God. At Mount Moriah, God is holy. And He's also merciful. The same thing, the same place. And from this location, we not only look backward to Mount Moriah, but now we need to look forward Because guess what else happens on this very site going forward? We mentioned 1 Chronicles 21 and 22 as the parallel account that harmonizes this. And in 1 Chronicles 22, here's what David says about this spot. Then David said, Here, on the threshing floor, shall the house of the Lord God, here the altar of burnt offering, shall be built for all Israel. David said, Here, The temple that God won't let me build, but here I can build the altar and the temple will be right here. So while David can only build the altar, Solomon will build the temple at the very spot of 2 Samuel 24 and Mount Moriah. Now, what's the temple? Quick lesson. The temple is the meeting place of a holy God with sinful people. The temple is the place where a holy God can come down in mercy to dwell with people. Because of a sacrifice that's averted His just and good wrath. The place where God's wrath is propitiated here, then in 2 Samuel 24, is the very place where God's going to build a temple to meet with His people. At the heart of that temple to come, at the heart of the temple itself, is an altar that David now buys at God's command to erect. Because God, can I put it this way, can't wait to forgive His people. He can't wait to do it he's providing a place for it to happen a permanent place and not just not just this but the chapter closes the story ends with these words and so the plague was averted not just from david and his sin but from all israel in this sin this propitiation of the plague arises solely from within caused by sourced in the mercy of god you see what happened in this chapter? It begins with the Lord rightly angered against an unspecified injustice, an unknown injustice in Israel. But in the providence of God and the merciful sovereignty of God, He now uses the sin of His people to provide the place that they will need. God used the sin of His people, 2 Samuel 24, one, to provide a permanent place for the atonement of His people, 2 Samuel 24.25. And in a mystery of mercy, God would meet with his people. He would dwell with them. He would live with them. He would come down in a sense and eat with them. And he would do so at the very place of judgment. When God comes down to Mount Moriah, the throne of judgment is reset with a tablecloth of mercy. The propitiation of God's wrath. Burn offerings would be offered and sacrifices. Sacrifices that would atone symbolically for the sin of David and Israel. And the place of atonement would then become a place to offer peace offerings. You know what was unique? One of the unique things about the peace offering? That after you offered the sacrifice, you sat down and you shared a meal in the presence of God. A symbolic way to saying things are so okay between us, we're now eating and enjoying one another's company. That's happening here. God's eating with His people. A peace offering. The wrath has been averted. All is at well. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. God's wrath is not averted. See for a final time. Because of David's efforts. It's not averted because of David's sincerity. God's wrath is averted because God provided a place of atonement. And the sacrifice that he provided results in Peace. The place of judgment has become the place of mercy. The place has become a permanent place for us to meet with God. And now we can say again, as 2 Samuel ends, God is with us again. And so the book ends. The book ends with the great need of everyone in this story resolved. God showed great grace and mercy to all who walked on the stage of this play because one day he would provide a permanent place of atonement where he could permanently dwell with his people in a temple through a sacrifice that never needed to be repeated. And so now the story of Samuel comes to an end, and the curtain goes down, but they pull back the curtain, and now all the actors come on on stage for a final curtain call. There comes Hannah, there comes Eli, there comes Samuel, well, there comes Saul too, and Joab. There's Bathsheba and Uriah. They all come out for a curtain call. They've all played their part. Some exemplary and honorable. Not all have been honorable. Some leave us with deep questions about their relationship with God. Whether they ever really confessed their sin. Was Saul a believer or not? I don't know. I don't think so. But I know one thing. When you come to die, you don't want to be a place at your funeral where everybody goes, I don't know. That's one lesson from Saul's life. Not everybody on this stage That's not clear of everybody. It's not the way that you'd want your life to end. But then David steps forward. God's chosen king steps forward. He takes a bow, but then he falls to one knee and he bows his head. And at that moment, the melody plays for a final time because he wants you to know what can wash away our sin. What a strange and beautiful end to such an epic Tale, the last line and so the wrath of god was averted and the lights go off and the theater clears out but david is not the end of course he had been as much a part of the problem as the solution But his last exemplary act on stage in 2 Samuel 24, his last exemplary act is to show you how to repent and where we must go to find forgiveness. There was no king like this in his life or in his repentance or in his righteousness. There was no king in Israel like this. And the last thing he shows you is how to repent and where to go. And you know what that takes us finally to? It's not the place of propitiation. It finally takes us to the person of propitiation. The end of this story looks past David on Mount Moriah, and it looks far ahead, and you know where it looks. You know where it looks. It looks past Mount Moriah, and it looks ahead to Mount Calvary. And there, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of David hangs there rejected by heaven and earth, and he offers a sacrifice like David, but his sacrifice is so much better than David's. And Jesus offered a sacrifice not for his own sins, but for ours. And he took the blame that David deserved. He took the blame that you deserved, And he bore the wrath. And he paid the cost so that we can stand forgiven at the cross. And the sacrifice that Jesus offers is not an animal. It's his own life. The life David should have lived, but he didn't. A life of perfect love a life full of justice, a life full of holiness between God and man. There was never like this man, Jesus. And his own life is the very temple, the meeting place between God and man. For Jesus walked around Jerusalem mystifying them all when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And he was referring to his body. Oh, the scene in 2 Samuel 24 where God provides a permanent place of atonement to avert His wrath and the mercy of the temple finds its final fulfillment in Jesus. Not simply the place of God's atonement, but the person of God's atonement. You know, in this epilogue, David shows us, he shows that he's a king in 2 Samuel 21. He shows us that he's a prophet in 22 and 23. He shows us he's a priest in 2 Samuel 24 as the story comes together. But at the cross... Jesus, the son of David, fulfills what David was in part. Jesus is God's perfect king, his most faithful prophet, sacrificial king, the very place that God meets sinners, the very person in whom and through whom he makes atonement. And the only place, the only place, the only person you can deal with to deal with deal with the wrong in your life the only thing you can do is to bow like this jebusite man named aruna the only thing you can do is to bow before jesus god's king because in christ the place of god's greatest wrath becomes the place of his greatest mercy and we say and we look at Him. there's no king like jesus there's nobody like him i wonder do you know him there's nobody like him I'm not telling you now to come to him because he can forgive your sin. I'm telling you to come to him because there's nobody like him. Nobody. Full of justice, love, holiness, mercy, righteousness. There's nobody like him. And you can come. You can come to him through the life that he gave. And the only way to escape then the madness of the crowds and the madness of our conscience is to fall into the hands of a merciful God. We live in a world full of condemnation without an ounce of forgiveness. But those who meet God at the altar of the cross of Christ, the King, will find a world of forgiveness and not an ounce of condemnation. And so, the wrath of God was averted that day and we can fall into the hands of a merciful God. And Jesus says today from this table, do this in remembrance of Amen.